Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham. Guys, thank you so much for all your feedback on Tim Lovejoy's podcast. You guys seem to really enjoy it, and I don't know why that surprises me. It doesn't, actually, because I love talking to him. I found him really open and honest, really willing to share. Um, yeah, he was awesome. I also loved the trip down Soccer AM memory lane. I mean, it made me feel really old, but it was good fun, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I also really enjoyed his parenting advice particularly the tip about always saying yes to your kids. I mean, not in terms of like if they ask for a can of Coke, but yes to doing stuff with your kids. Yeah, really good advice, that. I will definitely be adopting it. That kind of approach creates infectious positivity, doesn't it? Oh, and the good news is, well, I'm hoping that, I'm expecting that, fingers crossed, all the sound issues are now sorted. I've bought an extra little bit of kit for the podcast recording devicey thing so hopefully we won't have any more problems but thank you for your feedback on that okay next up we have a titan of formula one with 10 constructors titles with three different f1 teams i'm actually struggling to think of anyone more successful than this man have you guessed who it is mr adrian newey of course Come with me as I delve into the heart and mind of the world's most successful, renowned and respected aerodynamicists and engineers. He tells me all about his schoolboy antics, which actually you might be surprised to hear were quite naughty, quite a naughty boy. He also reminisces about his first big break in IndyCar and then, of course, in Formula One. He tells me the best driver he's ever worked with and his friends in the paddock, which I always find really interesting, kind of who are mates with who. And he tells me why he stayed at Red Bull for such a long time, particularly by his standards. Do you know what? He actually had so much to say. I wish the podcast could have run and run. I wish I could have had a kind of Joe Rogan-esque type podcast where I've talked for like three hours because Adrian Newey has got so much interesting stuff to share. But for now, you've got about an hour. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Mr. Adrian Newey. Well, Adrian, thank you for welcoming me into what is a quite incredible home, full of art, 
lots of modern art, which sort of surprised me. I don't know why, but I think you sort of try and guess how somebody will decorate um, their home. And this kind of surprises me. Are you, are you a big art collector then? Well, you thought I'd be into constables and that sort well, of thing. I don't know, maybe, yeah, <laughs> maybe. It's quite edgy, actually. I like it. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I've always enjoyed art. Um, in fact, at school, there's probably art was definitely my best subject. Um, and my, my children, my parents were, or my mother's side was artistic. And um, my children have generally been quite artistic, so... Uh, I guess just for passion and kind of when you redecorated the house here then it seemed nice to get some, some nice art pieces up. Well it makes sense that you would be into art because I think um, we've talked before about all your ideas coming through a sketch pad and a pencil and paper. I couldn't help but notice something in your downstairs loo that was your school report oh, yes. <laughs> the, which made for great reading that described you as uh, with the potential to do well when sensible but can be extremely silly and this must stop immediately and that really tickled me explain yourself please <laughs> yes no, I'm afraid I was I was always I was always in trouble at school I just school and me didn't really go together I think most of the lessons I found pretty boring and kind of to be perfectly honest French in particular was I treated as a as a um, art class for sketching racing cars. That's all I ever did. I don't think I, I hardly learned a, a word of French and got unclassified in my O levels, so that didn't go too well. Um, but I don't know. I it's always I guess I, was, I wasn't deliberately mischievous, but I always seemed to end up in trouble. So what a case of not being challenged in the right direction? Do you think? I just found it kind of quite restrictive when I got to college and then university that was completely different I think that extra bit of freedom but um, kind of I went through the private school system um, in terms of prep school and then public school up until the age of 16 and uh, the public school in particular which was boarding I just didn't enjoy I was I was never that good at sport Um, and it was if you kind of wanted to be popular and needed to be good at sports so that kind of put me on a bit of a back foot maybe I was considered slightly awkward or geeky I'm not sure um, but just never really enjoyed it and was actually then asked not to return after O-levels having done a few things uh, which suited me fine because I then went to the local technical college and got a got into motorbikes and girls and all the things that you couldn't do when you're at a boys' public school. And um, I'm sorry, you can't just skirt around this for doing a few things. What did you do specifically to get expelled? Uh, it was no, kind no, of... No science lab or anything? No, no, not that one, but um, there are a few things. One was, um, I was into karting at the time, go-karting, and so and my, the uh, workshop manager was actually very good. Um, at, there was a sort of workshop for... I don't know, woodworking and metalworking and so forth at, at school. So I managed to persuade him to let me bring my cart back and tinker with it during evenings um, and got it going and then kind of ran it around um, outside the workshop, which is also by the, the school chapel. And of course it made a hell of a racket and um, kind of, and there was one of the other, uh, one of the friends who had helped me with it said could he have a go he had a go and had a small accident in it by which time the headmaster had turned up to see what all the commotion in the racket was about so I was in a bit of trouble for that one not asking if I could run it 
etc. Um, court and pubs, the usual stuff. And then the one, I guess, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back was um, the sixth formers had this thing where they could have a organise an end of term pop concert. And uh, that particular year, they managed to get a band called Greenslade, which was kind of like Tangerine Dream. It was one of those sort of 70s atmospheric bands. Anyway, um, it was also in the days of Oxford Loons and Bags and so forth. So we got managed to get hold of some half bottles of vodka and gin and so and um, taped them to our shins underneath the trousers and smuggled them in. And then mixed them with Coke once you were in. I'm not sure why we didn't just mix it with the Coke before we went in. It'd have been a lot easier anyway. And um, and uh, kind of yours truly got fairly, well, ratted, let's say. Um, the band itself had this uh, sort of sound mixing booth in the middle of the auditorium. So when the guy who was doing the mixing went off, I guess, to go to the loo, I jumped to the controls, slid all the sliders to max... Um, at which point again the house the headmaster turned up by which time I think I'd probably more or less passed out anyway I was caught at the controls of the flipping sliders um, taken off up to the school sanatorium and given a stomach pump which I think was a bit unnecessary (laughs) (laughs) it was very unpleasant that's for sure and then uh, the following day apparently they found that the all the sort of leading on the stained glass windows of the of the this Piers building, which is, I think, built in the 15th century or something and survived Cromwell and everything. They're very proud of their original stained glass window. But anyway, some of the, the leading was cracked. And um, they decided that was my fault because of the, <laughs> the noise. <laughs> so I was, my parents were summoned to take me away, which is actually also quite funny because my mother was, um, she was very much a leftover from the swinging 60s. She sort of always liked dressing in white with a miniskirt. And uh, so she turned up and gave with a potted plant because the headmaster, um, she knew, liked potted plants. So she gave him this bright white, or beautiful white lily and said, um, here you are, Mr. Gammon, wasn't it? Um, here's, a, here's a small present for you. Now, um, about what, what Adrian, he's a good little boy, he isn't he? And, uh, and the headmaster said, no, I'm afraid um, he's actually been a very bad boy. She said, oh, well... So what happens now then? Well, I'm afraid you'll have to take him away. And she said, oh, well, if that's your attitude, Adrian, come on, let's go, and I'll have my potted plant back. <laughs> that was it. Good. I'm glad you took the plant back. Yes, exactly. Yeah, bribery didn't work, and rightly so. So at what point did you realise in your childhood that actually you could make a career out of this passion of drawing cars? I mean, because back then I guess it wasn't a, you know, an obvious career path. No, it wasn't. It, it was a very hard industry to get into. I mean, I can I kind of, for whatever reason, I still don't really know why. I wanted to be a racing car designer probably from about the age of 10. Um, I think in, at least in part because my father was, uh, he enjoyed tinkering around on cars. He was a vet, but he enjoyed tinkering. He was a keen, keen car enthusiast. And I used to buy these Tamiya 12 scale models and built them when I was in my early years, sort of like... 10 to 10, 11, and then from about 12, started sketching my own designs and then cannibalising the models and using my dad's workshop to fold up bits of metal and wood and fibreglass and stuff to make my own designs. So that very much became my passion. 
and I actually ended up kind of choosing my career, my subjects through school and university purely with the idea of trying to become a racing car designer. So actually my O-level results were much better in the art side than they were in the sciences. Um, and so the careers advisor said I should study art, history and English literature or something. But they didn't really interest me, or certainly not the the um, history and English. So, and as I said, I, I'm kind of one of the good things in a way that happened was... Um, getting chucked out of school and going to the local college. And I studied as an OND, which was meant to be equivalent to A-levels, Ordinary National Diploma, um, in technology. Again, thinking that was quite, you know, engineering sciences. Um, then struggled, but got into university to study aeronautics, not out of any particular interest in aircraft, but on the basis that racing cars use aircraft technology in their construction. So it's materials... It's stress analysis, it's aerodynamics, it's control theory, all the things that we do. Um, and then when it came to graduation and trying to get that first job, I got stuck in this Catch-22 problem. I, obviously, this is 1980, so well before the internet. Um, so I just wrote round to all the teams I could find addresses for. And, of course, most didn't reply. Um the ones that did were almost all only take that catch twenty two of you only take people with experience. Um one or two said we're interested, uh Tyrrell and a little um Formula Two outfit called Tiger or Production Car Outfit, which were based in Reading. So I went along for interviews with both of those and both of them said we'll take you if such and such sponsorship comes, but it didn't. Um so I was actually on the verge of taking a job with Lotus Cars on the road car side and hoping then if I could sort of do reasonably well on the road car side I'd be able to transfer into to the racing side when um, Harvey Postlethwaite who was then at Fittipaldi the technical director rang me up um, luckily I was in in the uh, at the digs in um, Southampton and said can you come for an interview so I rode my motorbike up um, had a Ducati and uh, sat in the sat in the reception at in Fitzpolders in Reading, and he came out and said, "Oh, you've obviously got a motorbike. What have you got?" So I said, "A Ducati 900 SS." And he said, "Oh, fantastic! I've got some motor Guzzi Le Mans." So those were in the at that time were the sort of two big rivals to each other. Can I have a go on it? So I said, "Of course, please, mate, be my guest." So off he went on my bike. And it was a very noisy bike, so you could see, hear him sort of rumbling around in the industrial estate. And eventually came back after about 10 or 15 minutes with a big smile on his face, took his helmet off and said, um, so when can you start? <laughs> that was the interview. <laughs> so after all that struggle, wow. it was straight in. Wow. Um, and as you say, it was a very small industry at that time. So we, Fittipold is, I think there was a total of five engineers. I was hired as junior aerodynamicist which turned out to be senior aerodynamicist as well, because the aerodynamics group was effectively me. That was it, um, which is unbelievable. I mean, nowadays, uh, you've got... the ver We're kind of in the middle, we Red Bull, but the very big teams, uh, Ferrari and Mercedes, they're probably well over 200 just in the aerodynamics group. It's, it's insane. Because it is a very specific ambition for a teenage boy. Did you have heroes out there that you... Could wanted to emulate. Um, 
Or was it more kind of you, you just admired F1 and, and the racing side of it? I just admired F1. I didn't really have heroes. I mean, I suppose Colin Chapman was obviously the, the guy who was known as the great innovator and he did create a lot of very good innovations. Um, there's another chap, Jim Hall, who um, was the owner and designer at Chaparral and he actually probably was responsible for a lot of what we now have in racing cars. Um just wasn't particularly recognised for us at the time. So I was always interested in the engineering. Um, and then on the sort of driver's side, then yes, of course, I follow, there's some drivers I particularly followed. I don't know why. Emerson Fittipaldi in particular. And, and Lotus, because my dad had a couple of Lotus lands, um, the second of which, both of them he built from kits, the second of in in... 1971, which is by then I was kind of old enough to help him build the build it from this kit. It kind of arrived on the back of a lorry, and it, he basically put the engine in and put the wheels on his stuff, which is a sort of tax dodge at the time. I think by doing that you avoided car tax. I'm not sure. So Lotus, as I say, was the the team we always followed, um, and it was kind of also suited what I was interested interested in because. Lotus tended to be, generally speaking, the most innovative team at the time. And, and the racing side of it, because you have always enjoyed racing as well, haven't you? Did that ever tempt you across, away from the design side of the business? Uh, to an extent. So when I was with the, with the go-kart, then um, I guess that I must have been about 14 at the time. Yeah, 14 or 15. And um, said to my dad, dad that I really wanted to go karting so he took me along to Shennington which was um, kind of the nearest kart track from Stratford-on-Avon where I grew up and we kind of observed everybody and he made the, he said um, look as far as I can see a lot of the kids that are here are here because their dads wanted them to be not because they're really hungry for it which is actually a, probably a very fair observation so he said look well, to prove your kind of hunger for it what I'll do is I'll, you go off some and earn some money, and whatever you earn, I'll double it, and then you can buy a cart with it. So I did exactly that. I did the newspaper rounds, I washed cars for the neighbours, etc. Um, but even when you then double that money, it's not very much. So I bought this very tired old cart called a Barlotti um, with a Villiers engine, uh, which was... With hindsight, a bit of a strange choice, actually. It was a gearbox cart, and that was born out of the fact that when we went to that Shennington with my dad for the observation, we saw with the 100cc um, fixed wheel, no gearbox, no clutch carts, the technique is you, the driver runs alongside the cart um, with the dad behind with the back axle in the air. Then he drops the drops the cart, and at the same time, the driver's meant to jump in and slide into position, and off he goes. That's, That's a lovely image, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? That's the theory. Yeah. Um, but this particular time, then one of the kids missed his footing as the Ooh. dad dropped it. The cart fired, but drove off and ran into the side of a car. <laughs> the kid was rolling on his side on the floor, and the dad was going absolutely nuts, of course. And um, on the basis of that, I could just see that being exactly me. So I thought I'd go for a gearbox cart, yeah. which was a questionable choice as hindsight. But anyway, that's what I did. And um, so I and kind of did a bit of... So then drove the cart and did quite a few practice sessions. And the 
combination of it and me were completely off the pace. Um, so actually, kind of, for me, the interest became almost more than the driving. It was actually trying to modify the cart to make it go faster. So I kind of, as I said, I used a school workshop to do bits and pieces. Um, I learned to nickel bronze weld and made, eventually made a new frame for it um, with the help of a friend built an electronic ignition for it so um, rebuilt the engine with a thing called an Upton barrel which is meant to give us a bit more power etc so I'm not sure we made it an awful lot quicker but I enjoyed the process of trying to understand what would make it go quicker and and, and how to go about it that's amazing that's really amazing I mean your F1 career has obviously been very very successful 10 constructors titles with three different F1 teams I mean yeah. that's astonishing um, do you have a particular favorite at most satisfying of wins title wins um was it the first probably the first because at Leighton House and this is kind of one of my sadnesses in a way that um we there are probably two races which we could have won one was um Japan in the wet in 1988 against against the turbos the might of McLaren that year when um Capelli got into the lead in in the wet and then it's only it was only about six months later because we couldn't understand why the car suddenly sorry he got into the lead and then the car suddenly stopped and when we got to it we got it back to, from the pit to the pits um, plugged it in and fired straight up and we could never really understand what had happened and then it's only about six months later that a rather sheepish Ivan admitted that he might have hit the ignition switch while he was trying to adjust the brake balance. So that's what happened, almost certainly. Um, so that would, to have won in, the, in 1988 against the might of the turbos would have been amazing in our first year in Formula 1. Mm. And then again in 1990, we came quite close in France. Um, but bottom line, we never managed, we threatened here and there to win with Leighton House, but didn't. Um, and then in my move to Williams in that first year, the car looked reasonably competitive to the point that in Montreal we had a huge lead when Nigel famously started waving to the crowd at the final hairpin and wound it in, into a, an engine shut-off mode, basically, which was a software bug, but it's that thing that the driver did, did something that he's never, ever done before through all the testing, all the racing, and it exposed a bug. Um, I do remember being absolute despair at that one because come so close so many times and never won a race. The following race was Mexico um, and we had uh, Ricardo win it from Nigel, so we had a 1-2, which and that that was such a relief to have finally been not wholly responsible but mainly responsible for the design of a car that won a race. Mm. Um, it, was, it was a really good feeling. And it must have felt a long time coming. It was a long time. <laughs> well... I mean, in I guess in the whole scheme of things, yes. And no. I mean, I, I, was, I was lucky to have quite a, a golden career um, outside of Formula One prior to that. So uh, having been at Fittipaldi's mm. as an aerodynamicist for a year and a half, I then it, it became obvious that Fittipaldi's was, had lost its money and was kind of struggling. So I moved, well, I had an offer from Lotus to be an aerodynamicist there or to go to March to be draftsman during the week and a race engineer at the weekend and I chose March on the basis I'd 
already been an aerodynamicist for 18 months, if I could now get experience as a draftsman in the mechanical side and a, as a race engineer, then I'd have kind of ticked the three boxes of what you need to be to be a rounded or to have had experience in all the, if you like, the different faculties of motor racing. So that's what I did. Um, race engineered in Formula 2 for a year and um, did some kind of, as I say, detailed drafting jobs around the, for the various uh, classes of car that, that March made. And then towards the end of 82, um, there was a very unloved sports car. It was a, a Group C car, stroke GTP car. Um, so an American, um, sorry, a, a prototype racing car, uh, like the current Le Mans cars, um, which was kind of had raced at Le Mans, done very poorly. It was kind of a bit of an unloved duckling. Um, I had done my final year project at Southampton on ground effect aerodynamics applied to sports cars. So I approached Robin Hurd, the owner of March, and said, um, look, I see this car's lying around. Can I have a go at it? And he said, well, okay, if you if you want to, there might be an outlet in the American Racing Series for it. But be aware, there's there's no budget for wind tunnel testing or anything. And I said, well, okay, I've, I've did my final the thesis on this style of aerodynamics applied to sports cars. Maybe I can just do it on what I learned from my thesis. So I did exactly that. Um, we, and I also got some weight out and redesigned some bits and pieces for it. We got the first car built, um, took it up to Donington for a shakedown with Tiffany Dell. Uh, and I mean, it shows how it's, uh, you can't believe it nowadays, but off we went, had a Chevrolet engine in the back and halfway through the day, the fan belt broke. So, um, one of the mechanics being quite enterprising said, well, look, there's a kind of, I don't know, quick fit. It wouldn't have been quick fit in those days, but whatever, motor factors around the corner. I'll go and see if they've got one. And um, he proudly came back about an hour later and said, yes, I've got one. And we got going again. Um, actually, the end of the day, we've all been quite tired. And at the end of the day, we're all due to leave. I had a Morris Marina, which is kind of the cheapest car I could find that, cheapest car I could buy that would get me to get me around and um, Tiff had a Austin Allegro I think two fine vehicles from British Leyland anyway I went in the back of the truck picked my keys up put the ignition turned and the key snapped oh, no. and it turned out I picked up Tiff's Allegro oh, no. keys <laughs> at which point of course we were both stuck he didn't have yeah. a key and my, I couldn't put my key in because the key, his key was stuck in it so the same enterprising mechanic, I think he must have been from around that area, rang up a mate who came round, and within about 10 seconds, his hot bar, both cars, and off he went. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, but anyway, we, we took that out, car out to America, to Daytona, for its first race. Um, and that actually was a real baptism of fire for me, because, yes, I'd done my years race engineering in F2, but this was something completely different. Mm. And um, Robin had sold the car to a guy who had a Ferrari Testa Rossa Road car, um, fancied himself as a racing driver, somehow had a license, and he was he wanted to race it. So he turned up, he'd hired actually one very good driver, a, a chap called Randy Lanier, and um, 
and Marty Hines, who's also pretty good, and then another chap, Terry Walters. So there were potentially four drivers. Anyway, we went up, did a bit of testing. I managed to persuade the the owner of the car that maybe he should do a bit more practice in something else before he <laughs> did day 10 to 24 hours. Um, they didn't have a team manager, so I ended up being team manager as well. Multitasking Multi- yet again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, and the car was, as you'd expect, for the car that had done kind of about a dozen laps around Donington, kept breaking down and having all sorts of problems. So we qualified very much midfield. We were up all night the night before the race, trying to get the car ready. Didn't really worry too much because it's probably a couple of hours and it'll break down. Um, race started. I said, I kind of, the, the girls who were doing the scoring very quickly lost track of where we were. And there's, you didn't have the all the kind of pit wall timing stuff that you have now. So we didn't really know where we were, to be perfectly honest, in the race. But I was just trying to keep Marty and Randy in the car as much as possible. Um, we were just going for a target lap time, not stressing the car. Uh, early up changes, not using going to the rev limiter, etc. Because you worried about the reliability of the engine. And the car kept going around. And it got to, I don't know, certainly into darkness, probably 11 o'clock at night. And I remember I wandered off to to the go to the lavatory and um, looked up and just like Indianapolis, Daytona has this sort of vertical scoring tower. And there, P1, was car 66. Didn't really think anything of it. You thought you were hallucinating because you were tired. <laughs> well, I didn't even... I was so tired, I didn't even really... I've completely forgotten 66 was our number. <laughs> so I was standing there at the, at the urinals, and he's 66, 66, I know that number. That's us. <laughs> it can't be. And who it was. We, we led from about, I think, about the 10th hour to the 22nd hour when, when it rained hard. We got a misfire from water in the ignition and ended up second. And that... That one race really is what kind of, I suppose, in many ways, launched my career mm. properly because off the back of that, Robin sold a whole load of more sports cars, um, including to Chapel Holbert, who was a Porsche dealer. So then had, I had the job of installing a Porsche engine instead of the Chevy in the back. Um, the car went on to, with Al Holbert to win the championship that year. And Robin kind of then on the back of that sold me to an IndyCar team True Sports as a race engineer for the following year 84 um, so I became Bobby Rahal's race engineer uh, living in the States through the summer and everything kind of started taking off from there Robin then gave me the job of uh, being chief designer on the IndyCar for 85 and 86 so we and we managed to win uh, the championship in 85 and 86 and the 585, 86 and 87 um, and then he uh, kind of eventually managed there was a little bit of a swerve but basically I then ended up as technical director for the Leighton House Formula 1 team which was March to start with and then became Leighton House It's interesting that you feel the foundations for your career kind of bedded in that side of the pond uh, culturally how different did you find it working in America to here because um, certainly it always seems a surprise that only mm. Graham Hill has won the triple crown obviously yeah. uh, Fernando's going for it this year I mean just how hard a feat is that and, and does the, do the cultural nuances play a part in, in that process it was I mean I always said at the time that IndyCar racing was the biggest club series in the States 
So it wasn't Formula One, it was at a lower level. But the desire to win and competitiveness was every bit as big and just much smaller budgets. Um, so small teams, which actually made it very friendly. We, and as a young lad in his 20s, it was, I, personally, it was an amazing experience. It's, we didn't tend to fly internally that much, so a lot of it was driving in these kind of converted minibuses, very often overnight, taking it in turns. But it was a great way to see America. Mm. And I think the variety of tracks taught me a lot because in F1 effectively you have street tracks and Monaco, Singapore and then you have your regular fixed tracks which generally speaking are much higher cornering speeds Indianapolis you have the street tracks and the if you like the conventional road tracks but then you have the short ovals and the super speedways so you, you have to learn how to adapt the car to very different circuits mm. um think the the speedways in particular teach you just how sensitive the car is to the aerodynamics and to the details of the setup so as a learning experience i think it certainly taught me a lot and when then we designed the 88 Layson house car it's probably in many ways the car i'm most proud of because i think it actually genuinely changed the the thinking in formula one at the time it's just coming out of the turbo era, um, where the cars aerodynamically were not very sophisticated. They just had huge rear wings and lots of power. And we kind of, knowing that we only had a normally aspirated engine, it was probably giving away, I don't know, 200 horsepower compared to the turbos. Um, I knew that we had to design a car, our only chance of being competitive was to design a car that's aerodynamically very efficient. And, and that's what we set about doing um, with an aero team which is really a couple of model makers and myself to be perfectly honest um, and we we managed to come up with a car which did exactly that but I think that kind of training came out of my indie car experience mm, that's interesting is it fair to say that there's more luck required to win the Indy 500 or is that too simplistic as opposed to Formula 1 where you know, the top teams will always, the cream will always rise to the top. Uh, it does, yes. I think you probably, it's, to win Indy 500 as a one-off race as opposed to the to the IndyCar Championship, mm. I think that is fair. Um, there's a lot of things that go on in the race in terms of the yellow flags, possibly getting caught up in somebody else's accident, but the yellow flags in particular, you very often end up in a different sequence which might work out for you or it might not. Mm. Um, certainly with Mario Andretti in 87, then he had... I mean, Mario's an amazing guy. Such an amazing driver. It's, I mean, he was 47 at the time, but so still a proper competitor mm. and a very tough little competitor at that. Anyway, through that month of May, then he, he we have been quickest on every single day of practice he put, qualified on pole he was leading the race by almost a lap with about 50 miles to go and the engine went and that's kind of you know that's the the luck of a one mm. race event um and of course cars in those days were less reliable than they are now 
seems cruel, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, I'm, we're jumping around a bit, but um, I, I was reminded of something that Mark Webber said to me one of the first years that I was in F1, so sort of like 2011, um, that you were the most important person in Formula One who'd had the biggest impact. Is that something I'm sure that modesty will prevent you from sort of lapping up that kind of praise? But is that, are you surprised by the impact that you've had in the sport? Um, and I suppose vice versa. Well, I mean, it's very flattering of Mark to say that. It's very, very and I, I have lost time for Mark. He's a great guy. Um, With great opinions, obviously. <laughs> Clearly, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't, to be honest, I never really think about it. I get my buzz out of doing the job, not kind of what I may or may not have achieved. So it's not the bit of the job that gets me up. I don't, don't know if that's... A, decent explanation I knew that you'd be too modest to to really yeah soak that one up but uh, you've talked about one of the the cars that you're most proud of in the modern era is it the car that's brought you most success that sort of puts the biggest smile on your face I think in the modern era then that first championship win well the first race win and then the first championship with Red Bull mm. particularly the first championship is that because win. people had written you off as a team did they you know just well, I think company I and mean, not just not just the team but also maybe even a little bit myself that kind of you know I've been through this purple patch through my of kind of out in the states uh had a bad year in 89 with with the Leighton House, which kind of then meant that sudden, you know, usual thing, the press had built me up and then knocked me down when mm-hmm. we had that bad year in 89, which is why I've been a bit shy and guarded with the press mm-hmm. since then. Um, because I was happy to soak up the accolades in 88 and then was depressed by the, the criticism in 89. So easiest way to avoid that, don't, don't get involved. <laughs> exactly. Um, you accepted, obviously. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Glad you added that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so kind of then had a very good period with Williams and then the, the double constructors champion oh sorry, drivers championship wins and as soon as I joined McLaren. Um and then in McLaren we, we kind of we didn't win a championship. We've threatened a few times. And in two thousand and five we, we won ten races but didn't manage to win the championship through unreliability problems. Mainly with the engine and a few driver mistakes. So that was kind of a very difficult year but equally I think my value within McLaren seemed to be going down maybe in the pit lane I never really looked around but certainly I felt as if I wasn't as valued at McLaren as I had been when I first joined for various reasons which I can elaborate on but bottom line is I felt I needed a move and when um, Christian approached me about Red Bull and then um, David Coulthard who had gone from McLaren to Red Bull when I asked him about it he just thought okay this actually would be a, a really interesting move it's a big career gamble in a way to leave the safety of McLaren to go to this startup team which is built from the ashes of Jaguar the, the kind of one of the eternal never quite made it teams um, but it appealed to me because I suppose I'd, I felt I needed a new challenge and simply continuing to do the same at McLaren wasn't really getting me that excited um, 
And also there's the little bit the Leighton House thing that I thought Leighton House as a team we, we had lots of potential had we been given time but after just three seasons the rug was pulled on from mm. under us when the, uh, the the sponsorship dried up. So um, that's why I went to Red Bull but as I say it was a big gamble and, and a lot of people a lot of people thought I'd kind of committed professional suicide if you like mm. um, a lot of other people thought that Red Bull was a bit of a a joke party team that was certainly its reputation in the pit lane as this party team that doesn't not really interested in results but in a way that's quite good as the distraction because well, it, it was quite expectations are low and yes. you can just get on no, get no. your head down and get on with the job no you're absolutely right and that I think that was one of the good things but underneath it all Dietrich Matisic's our owner was you know was, he's he's a proper businessman he's mm. he wasn't prepared to just put lots of money in if we weren't going to perform mm. and if, and of course at the end of the day regardless of that for me it's I don't know professional pride or just competitiveness really kind of you want to you want to get the results mm. and um, when we started to turn the first couple of years um, 2007 and 8 our results were okayish but Nothing spectacular. Um, then 2009 starts to be a bit of a breakthrough year. And then to actually get the, the championship in 10 was extremely rewarding. And uh, also the way it was done, because kind of we'd had generally the fastest car through the year, but not particularly reliable, um, both engine and chassis side. And uh, Sebastian and Mark made the odd mistake here and there. Uh, so to kind of, sorry, I'm putting it badly. We got the constructors of one race to go, which was amazing. But both Mark and Sebastian were still in a in a chance for the drivers' championship. And when you've got that far, obviously you really want to try and get the double. Mm. So um, when Sebastian won it in in that last race, in such a close fight mm. to the championship with Fernando, that was one of the most I don't know kind of amazing things that's happened to me amazing is a bit of a funny word but it it was just so rewarding that that's probably the best way of putting it a sense of relief because it'd been a hard hard tense year but also extremely even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rewarding to have done that. You've been at Red Bull since 2006. I mean, that's a long time in Formula One. That's a long time in any sport. What is it about the dynamic, say, between you and Christian and the drivers that's worked so well and meant that you've stayed there for as long as you have? It's interesting you ask that. I think um, when I look back, then kind of March, Williams, McLaren, around those teams always sort of five to eight years maximum. And then I feel for whatever reasons, if I needed a new challenge and move and move on. Red Bull have now been, crikey, 13 years. Um, and I think, I guess I have a sort of a paternal feeling to it that was there more or less right from the start, with Christian being instrumental in how it's developed, how it's built. Um, technically, the kind of team was built around suiting me if you like um the way i work now trying to develop that further so as i don't because i don't want to be quite as full on in terms of number of hours as i used to be so i'm trying to step back a bit and and um give more responsibility to the very able team that we've developed uh beneath me if you like not i haven't think i don't like to think of people as working for me i like to work Mm. with them but if you draw the the organogram that's what you get um yeah, as I say, I just feel comfortable there. It's, it's. I enjoy going there, and if I was to change teams, the one thing you can guarantee is if you go to a new team, that doesn't matter what your reputation is, then you have to establish yourself. Mm. I don't. Nobody can demand respect, and it's right that they don't demand respect. You have to earn it, and when you work with a new group of people. That will take time. Mm. So you really have to put the hours and the dedication in to start with. And to be honest, I'm 60 now. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I can be bothered to go about doing that again. But more to the point, I just I feel very comfortable. Mm. I say I feel kind of... Most, I enjoy working there. I enjoy working with the people there. Um, and I guess because Christian and I have been responsible for shaping how it is today then why would I want to leave how close have you come through the years to leaving because some of the other teams must have come in with offers I know Ferrari did for example at one point how tempted were you by that there was I can't the the time I came closest to leaving the team was uh, in the middle of 2015 where we had so the, the we went to the hybrid engines at the start of the 2014 season. Mercedes clearly did a much better job than Renault on the engine side, and that happens. You know, you, you can't. Sometimes we get the chassis wrong, so you can't shoot your partner for one poor year. Um, but in 2015, the engine, if anything, was even worse rather than better than the previous year. Whilst by then Ferrari had started to catch up with Mercedes so we we went to see Carlos Ghosn the um, now rather disgraced president of the F- of uh, Renault 
And he just didn't seem to have any interest in putting the resource behind allowing the engineers at Renault to, to improve the engine, which was quite a depressing mm. place to be. Because, not what you want to hear. Well, it's not because, you know, we all get ourselves in a place where we're not competitive from time to time. As long as you can see a way out of that, then there's something mm. to work for. And, and as long as you've got a commitment to get out exactly. of that, yeah. Yeah, but here there was... There seemed to be no commitment. They seemed it seemed to be very much we're just happy to partake type attitude, and that was, from my point of view, extremely depressing. Mm. The fact that we were now lumped with an engine supplier that had no real interest in in improving their engines um, for the foreseeable future, and it's that that kind of when Ferrari and and um, a couple of other teams came knocking very hard kind of tempted me um in the end I obviously didn't and that was for various reasons not least I felt that kind of I'd be walking out on the team that had helped to create and that didn't really feel right um and how did the noises from Renault change because you can't rumble on with that relationship from 2015 until you're swapped to Honda now well it didn't it just to be perfectly honest, it just is like a, a marriage that takes a long time to get divo- to divorce from there. Um, we we started to openly criticise the engine in the press, um, not which is you can obviously argue is a very unprofessional thing to do, mm. and it is. But there was a motivation behind that, and that was to try to flush Renault into either putting the commitment in to do a proper job or pull out mm. um, in the event it it was a strategy that didn't work at all because Renault didn't really put any more commitment in they didn't pull out but it did sour, sour our relationship and a relationship that had been so successful only in recent history yeah. it seems strange that you won all those titles with them and then suddenly things well not suddenly but it was clearly a, a shifting commitment on their part in your mind, at least, yes, as to as to the change. Yes, it was. No, it's. I mean, uh, you know, we had a, we obviously had a very good relationship with them in the V8 era. Um, they treated, they had their own works team during that V8 era, but always treated us very fairly. Never ever had the sense that mm. um, we would, they would give us anything other than equal equipment with the works team. And then we had the the string of four championships that we had with them. But that seemed to start to change where we started to feel... I think there's a management... Well, there was a management change at mm. the top of, of Renault Motorsport. And with that, attitude seemed to start to change. And our relationship slowly got worse and worse to the point that really it was, it was a, say, a broken marriage for at least the last year, if not two years where we were kind of trapped, couldn't leave until until we were able to with Honda. Um, it's like a fractious marriage where you have to share the same house still. You always read about that, don't it, you? Yeah, it's, it's exactly what it was. Mm, yeah. It's a shame, isn't it? And, and how do you feel now? How do you genuinely feel now about Honda? Do you think, because it hasn't been the easiest starts to the season, perhaps Bahrain was a bit disappointing to you in terms of a result. How, how do you feel about Honda? Well, Honda, Honda are really... Breath of fresh air. They're, 
They're great people to work with. Mm. Um, very straightforward, very, very well organised. Um, and it's it's actually motivated the whole team having this new relationship with them. Um, and they they always deliver what they say. So no complaints at all there. Um, they're not quite at Mercedes or Ferrari level yet, but have every confidence that they will get there quite quickly. Mm. They just instill that confidence. And on the chassis side, um, you know, Bahrain, I'll be brutally honest, we, we haven't got the car as good as we'd like it to be at the moment. So um, we, we just need to get on and do our bit. And that's, I think that's the nice relationship we have with Honda, that we, we trust each other to just get on and do our bits and not start flinging mud at each other. Or could it be that you're still in the honeymoon period? Well, of course there is that. <laughs> but yes, of course, there is an element of that. Is there any um, sense that you might have the cultural differences that McLaren, say, had with them? Because I know that some of the, the, their, their cultural working patterns, for example, were at odds with each other. Yeah. You know, bit, other side of the world, for starters, is always tricky. But you, but you haven't seen any of that yet. Culturally, they are, yes, Absolutely, they are very different. But I think as long as you respect that and understand mm. it, then it, then it's absolutely fine. Mm. And I suppose I've, whilst I've never worked with Honda before, when I was at Leighton House, we had Japanese owners, and you that gave me a bit of an understanding of, mm. of how to work with the Japanese. And and what are your views on the other teams that you work for? You've obviously got half an eye on, on their progress this season. I mean, McLaren have actually made a pretty good start, and Williams completely the opposite. Yeah, no, McLaren looks a very good car, I think, in um, Bahrain. Does that surprise you? No, I mean, I think that's the, that's the great thing about Formula 1, isn't it? That you should never, ever have an expectation of where your competitor is going to be the following season based mm. on the previous season. Um, McLaren have always had a, a rough couple of years in terms of probably their chassis being not as good as it could be. But they've turned it around this mm. year and, and that's that's good for the sport. And so you don't think that that's just uh, a, a one a one race wonder? You think that they have genuinely turned a corner? I think they've they've produced a good car mm. for sure, um, which should allow them. Well, certainly give them a much better season than they had last year. Mm. Exactly where it's unlikely it's going to give them race winning performance, but they've made a good step, mm. which is positive the sport. And what about Williams? Because there's some reports that um, Sir Patrick will come back and advise and help them through this difficult period. It's it's obviously tough looking at Williams because they're such a popular team and, and Claire's such a great woman that she's got this legacy of her family hanging over her that she wants to deliver on. Um, it would be great to see them come out of this difficult patch, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. I mean, Williams, you know, for, the, for Williams to be solidly on the back row of the grid is very sad mm. um i just hope that they have the finances and, and to to make the right decisions put the right research in to get themselves out of it mm. and what about your driver lineup i know that you were and still are very close to daniel ricardo how sad disappointed were you that he left particularly to go to renault i uh, know it it's a great shame because i mean you know, daniel's a great he's a really good person um very calm operator at the race weekends, particularly in the car, and and was giving very good feedback and and obviously a, a proper competitor. So it was sad when he said he was moving, and I have to be honest, I was very surprised. I really didn't. We'd had various quite a few discussions with him 
leading up to him announcing that and I if I was a betting man I'd have given it at least a nine to one odds that he was going to stay so it was a surprise um I understand in a way that he had been a Red Bull driver ever since he arrived in Europe and he kind of wants to try a different girlfriend I suppose mm. but sometimes it's best to stick with the same one but it's funny though because you're reflections on why you left McLaren to Red Bull could actually be applied to Daniels from going from Red Bull to Renault. Would you agree with that? Just in terms of it feels like it's run its course and feels like you needed, you were saying you needed to carve a new way for yourself and you perhaps weren't feeling the love to the same extent that you were used to at McLaren. Would you say that kind of applies to Daniel? Uh, Possibly. I mean, I think there's the feeling the love aspect. Yes, I do understand that I think um, Mark very much suffered from that Mark Webber in as much as um, Helmut Marco kind of has his young driver program and he tends to have his favourites and Sebastian is clearly a favourite and Max is now uh, and that can be a little bit off-putting for the, the one that's kind of no longer the favourite child but having said that, if if a driver, I think, can put that aside, it makes no difference in how the cars run, how it's repaired, etc. The parts that are on the car, so it is that's a purely kind of in the head thing. Mm. Yeah, um, but isn't that a massive part of racing, particularly if a world championships at stake, and you think that the other side of the gar- garage is favoured? Well, I guess that's my point. It's not favoured. It's a perception mm. it's favoured, but it's mm. not favoured. But I understand the point. That if mm. you if you start to feel as if you're you're not the, the chosen child anymore, then it's you have to be extremely mentally strong to be able to say, well, actually, it make you know what it makes no difference. I'm just going to get on with it. Mm. And occasionally, I think you do see drivers like that. I mean, maybe Nicky against Alan Prost was an example of that. Where I would imagine Alan was probably the favoured one, but. Nicky still did it mm. because he's such a tough character. Mm. Um, and sometimes it brings out the best in the other driver, yeah. not the worst. Yeah. I think, I, but the, the other big difference is if I, as an engineer, if I change teams, providing the the funding and the infrastructure is there, then I can have a influence on the design of the car and how competitive that car is. As a driver, you can't have a big influence you can have some because of your feedback but you can't have a big influence on how competitive the team is it, mm. it's actually the team so your job then becomes to be certainly to beat your teammates and then do the best you can mm. um, it's I'm not explain it terribly well but it's slightly different I think no, no, for no. a driver changing teams as compared to an engineer mm. changing teams no that makes sense and I know you're not supposed to have favourites but have you had one over the years of all the drivers you've worked with you had one that you've particularly clicked with i think click is exactly the right word so you know particularly when i was race engineering there's some drivers as sorry go back one i think if you get it right a race engineer driver relationship can become very close you kind of almost understand each other and you trust each other and the the driver gives the feedback that the race engineer needs, and then the 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 driver trusts the race engineer to get on with it. And I had that 
probably Bobby Rahal in particular in the States, Mario Andretti as well. Uh, actually, it's those two that probably stand out most of all. Mm. Um, Damon and Damon Hill and Mika Hakkinen as well. Uh, now I'm kind of not quite as involved in the race engineering as I used to be. But in terms of kind of the drivers I do work with still and, and kind of emphasise with, it, I suppose, have friendships with, um, then probably it'd be Mark and Daniel that, that, as I know best, Sebastian, I think is... Sebastian gets a hard time in the English press and it's unfair because he's actually a really good person. Mm. Um I think he's quite guarded. He's quite private, which is, is quite, which is great yes. for him. But yeah. sometimes people don't see the real Sebastian Vettel, and yeah. actually, it's quite endearing yeah. when you get to know him. No, he's uh, a great aspect, person. Yeah. He's a great chap, and he's, you know, if the drivers now that have left the team but still come up and chat, then Sebastian is the one that's always popping yeah. around. To, yeah, which is nice. And and what about Pierre Gasly? Because obviously, he he got a a pretty late unexpected call up in some ways to, mm. to join the senior team. It hasn't been the easiest start to the season for him. Has he got what it takes? Can he cut it at the top level? I think he's, he's had an unfortunate start because um, in Barcelona, he had two big accidents, one in the first week of testing and one in the second week. And the second one in particular really put us on our back foot because it actually pretty much cost... Uh, Max his last day of testing as well because we just didn't have enough parts to properly rebuild the car so that kind of it hurt our preparations for the season a little bit but then I think psychologically for mm. him of course it's it's quite a blow because now he's he's probably driving just a little bit stiff because he knows that if he crashes again it's going to be really unpopular um in the race, actually, on Sunday, if you look at his pace, once he was in clear air, then it was very close to Max's. It's just he d hasn't got his qualifying sorted yet. Mm. So, And the car wasn't easy to drive in Bahrain. It was quite badly affected by the wind. Um, Melbourne, the qualifying is obviously just a mess. So I think it's... Don't, don't judge let mm. yet. Let it all settle down a bit and see, I think he'll he'll get there. Because it is quite hard for a driver to get into a new car and adapt to that car. I mean, the same can be said for Daniel in the Renault to an extent. It's a very different beast to the Red Bull. So it's a question of, of a driver adapting. And it, they should be allowed a bit of time to bed in, shouldn't they? Yeah, so what you do, what you do get is some cars suiting a driver's style mm. better than others. Mm. Um, Sebastian, for instance, always his driving style required a very strong rear end on corner entry. And if, if the car had that, then he was devastatingly quick. If it didn't, then he actually struggled. He didn't seem to be able to adapt his style that well to a car that didn't have that characteristic. Mm. He, I've never worked with, well, I have worked with Kimmy, sorry, but it was quite some time ago, but you hear Kimmy always wanting a strong front end, which is actually, when I think about it, that's correct. So some drivers do have a style that they've developed, which if the car can't deliver that, mm. they struggle with. And is that how you separate the good from the great? Because everybody always still says that Fernando, I know he's obviously left the grid now, mm. but Fernando was the greatest last year because he was able to get so much out of an underperforming McLaren, and that's the sign of a truly great driver. 
Yeah, I think that is there is that is true. I think you saw that with with Fernando. You saw it with Ayrton. Um Max is also able to do that. I think it's it's a it's an extra string. This if you can adapt your driving totally, and if you pick up whatever is required the that the car requires you to do, then that is that is amazing. And you see it with other sportsmen. I mean, Valentino Rossi when when. Um, Marquez came in with his unique style. Then Rossi stood back, um, looked at it, thought, yeah, this is a new style, I've got to adopt it, and he has. Mm, very true. Completely different question now. Well, it's not completely different. It's along the same lines. The W Series. Tell me why you chose to get involved with it and how that all started for you and how excited you are at the prospect of an all-female series. Well, the, the starting of it was very easy. That um, <clears throat> David Coulthard and his good friend Sean Wadsworth, um, both kind of who I've known for many years, um, approached me and said, "You know, this is the series we're we're looking at. What do you think?" And, and to me, it, I can see a lot of logic to it. Um, Girls in karting, you, you when my lad was karting, you used to see it says so be some girls who are very quick, um, every bit as quick as the boys, and then they get to a certain level where they seem to hit a bit of a glass ceiling, um, and it was difficult for their dads to get them further. And I think Formula W, what it does is it it shows to parents and to companies. Prospective sponsors that there is a professional outlet for female drivers, so that's good because it encourages the girls to keep going, that they won't just sort of get blown up because they're because they're female. Um, and at the same time, of course, then it allows them to keep developing their talents. And then, if if one or two girls from that championship stand out, hopefully they'll be picked up and go back into Formula 2 or whatever it might be to demonstrate their ability there. So I think it has an awful lot going for it. I know there's those who then say, no, this is wrong, there shouldn't be segregation, there hasn't been segregation in the past. But if you look in sports, motor racing is almost unique in not having segregation. And I'm not saying, therefore... It makes it right, but I think there are, as I mentioned a moment ago, very good reasons for doing it. And also, what's gone in the past hasn't worked because we haven't got enough women through to the top echelons of the sport. So, for me, well, at least from the outside, it seems that they need track time, and this is a way of guaranteeing them that. Exactly right. Um, you can debate: is it lack of opportunity, such as I've just described, or is it is it just that women, for whatever reason? aren't able to compete I know this is going to be controversial but aren't able to compete as at the same level as men in the, in the same equipment I'll be honest at the top level I don't know if that's true or not but what this does is do is offer the opportunities to develop and to find out and something that excites me is that obviously there's some high profile girls involved like Alice Powell and Jamie Chadwick girls that we know well and actually, at the moment, it's not necessarily them topping the timesheets. So there's talent out there that we didn't know necessarily existed before. So if anything, you are unearthing new talent. Yeah, exactly. And that was, the, that was really the idea of it, that 
the girls who who haven't managed to attract commercial sponsors, their dads can't afford it on their own because of the sheer expense involved in motor racing. That's our mums. And mums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then, um, yes, sorry. <laughs> Parents, <laughs> well, well corrected. <laughs> then, um, then this gives them the chance mm. to, to keep going. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Will a woman win a Formula One Grand Prix or even a world championship in our lifetime? Crikey, that is a difficult one. I mean, they have in IndyCar racing with Danica Patrick, then she won an IndyCar race, certainly. Um, in rallying, Michelle Mouton, mm. uh, I think, won the rally championship, did she? Uh, so in Formula One, I think you can argue about the physicality of it, but I don't think it's a strong argument because as long as you've got a good level of fitness, you've obviously got to build up your neck strength and that sort of thing, then... then then physically there's no reason why a woman shouldn't be strong enough. So why not? That's a yes. I want to hear you say it. Come <laughs> on, Adrian, you says yes. <laughs> no, I'm far too guarded for that. You know me. Uh, well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I've loved it. Thank you, Natalie. No, thank you very much for coming around. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. What a lovely guy Adrian Newey is. So modest when you consider the huge amount of success that he's had in his life and career. And yet he remains so down to earth, almost shy really. Once you get him talking though, brilliant. All the great stories start coming out. So hope you enjoyed that. Um, Please let me know what you think. Rate, review and subscribe. It's so important for this podcast if you do rate, review and subscribe. R-R-S. Those three crucial words to In The Pink Success. And I want to hear from you as to who else you want on the podcast. I know loads of you have asked for F1 guests, which I'm definitely working on. We've got some cool ones coming your way. We've also got, next up, Eddie Hearn, the boxing promoter. Now, I've known Eddie for a number of years, and it's been great to see him kind of come out of his dad, Barry Hearn's shadow, and really establish himself as a force to be reckoned with in the boxing world and he gives me a unique inside track on Anthony Joshua including the crucial question when he thinks AJ will fight Deontay Wilder and when he thinks AJ will fight Tyson Fury and interestingly which of the two will be the tough about hear Eddie Hearn's opinion on that in the meantime thank you for your company remember to rate review and subscribe And I will see you very soon for plenty more interesting guests on In The Pink. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.